Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 4, What's So Special About Special Education? It was my first or second year of teaching when one of my students, we'll call her Jamila, came to see me after class very upset. She had apparently found out that a classmate, we'll call him Hector, who had cerebral palsy along with some cognitive impairments, wasn't taking the same final exam she was, but a shorter, simpler one, thanks to his special education plan, or IEP. I was young and inexperienced and gave some pretty inadequate responses that failed to get at the heart of what special education entails, namely the idea of equity. Jamila, like many of us tend to, was thinking of fairness in terms of equality. Everyone gets the exact same treatment. Equity, by contrast, involves everyone getting what they need in order to succeed. It's like in that famous cartoon that depicts a bunch of kids standing behind a fence trying to watch a baseball game. The kids are of varying heights. Some can see over the fence and some can't. The next panel shows them all standing on boxes of exactly the same height. And now some of the kids can see over, but the shortest ones still can't. That panel is labeled equality. Everyone gets the same thing, that same size box. The final panel shows them all standing on different size boxes at whatever height they need in order to see over the fence. This panel is labeled equity. I've seen some versions of the cartoon that add a fourth panel in which the fence is gone, labeled justice, but we'll deal with that in another episode. When many people hear the phrase special education, though, equity isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Too often, special education or special needs is used as a term of disparagement, a slightly higher register equivalent of that classic Boston insult, that's retarded. As recently as the 2000s, the idea of special education and students who benefit from the services it mandates was still mocked in mainstream popular media. For example, the character of Special Ed in the popular series on Comedy Central, Crank Yankers. Is this the record store? This is the record store, yeah. Yeah, I want to hear that song. What song? Ba boom ba boom ba yeah yeah. Uh, what song is that? Hey, it's that song. You got it. I like that song. Yay! Or even in one of my otherwise favorite geek culture movies, Doctor Horrible's Sing Along Blog. How you make make me feel? What's the phrase? Like a fool, kind of sick, special needs. Anyway, portrayals like these constitute a rather revolting dismissal and stigmatization of the 6.7 million real children and adolescents who receive special education services across the USA, about 13% of all students. And that number is on the rise, either thanks to more accurate diagnoses or more harmful environmental conditions, or likely a little of both. An understanding of how and why special education services operate in American public schools should be something everyone possesses, even if neither they nor their children benefited from those services. And that's why I wrote this episode. Let's dive into some history and anatomy of special education together. Prior to the 1960s, students with physical or mental disabilities were often shunted off to separate schools, some of which were actually mental institutions, others of which were a little better than holding tanks. Some were denied a public education entirely. The Education of the Handicapped Act of 1966 began to change this unjust state of affairs, followed by the 1973 Rehabilitation Act that gave families of handicapped children the right to sue their school system for not providing sufficient services. When it became clear that not a lot of families were wealthy enough to afford such protracted legal battles, disability advocates successfully pushed for the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, known as EAHCA, or usually just EHA, in 1975. 
1990, Congress renamed it IDEA, I-D-E-A, or Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the name it currently goes by. EHA and IDEA were game changers. For the first time, any public school accepting federal funds, which is pretty much all of them, were required to provide equal access to education, in addition to one free meal a day for children with physical and mental disabilities. These acts were also exceptional in that they represented federally drafted and imposed legislation with bearing on local public schools, which really only happened a handful of times in America's history. Listeners from literally every other country on the planet may find that last sentence puzzling, so for their benefit, and long-time listeners, you know what's coming, so you're welcome to sing along. Unlike every other nation on Earth, the United States of America does not have a central federal authority governing what happens in public schools. That responsibility lies somewhat with the states, but the vast majority of it lies with the towns and school districts, all 13,000 some odd of them, each of which can set its own curriculum and practices, and each of which is responsible for funding that school. This results in 13,000 different curricula, something that got a little more standardized after another rare federal intervention in 2001 mandated every state establish and assess schools and students based on certain basic learning standards. This wide variation also results in vast and inequitable differences in school funding, since as much as three-quarters of a school's budget comes from local property taxes. So towns and cities where property is valued high can field the latest and greatest fancy facilities and pay the best qualified teachers and, unsurprisingly, have the best student outcomes on standardized tests. While towns and cities where property is valued lower, which thanks to a history of redlining and restrictive covenants and other forms of structural racism, this is the majority of school districts where you'll find BIPOC students, school quality and student performance suffers. Although, of course, that could be a total coincidence. <clears throat> anyway, this all matters in part because the question immediately arose of just how this special education for students with special needs was going to be paid for. In a departure from the way in which public education had always and continues to operate in our country, the federal government decided, through Part B of the IDEA Act, to contribute up to 40% of the national average per pupil expenditure, multiplied by the number of special education students in a given state, in funding packages earmarked specifically for the education of students with special needs. Now, if you were listening carefully, you might have detected a massive flaw in this plan. It's easy to think that the IDEA Act promises states that the federal government will cover 40% of whatever costs there are to educate kids with special needs in a given school or district. But no, it means schools could receive up to 40% of the average cost of educating the average student, multiplied by the number of special education students in a given state. Students with special needs, by definition, are not your average student, hence the adjective special. If you look at the cost of educating the average student with special needs, well, depending on those needs, it runs between one and a half and three times more than that of educating a student without those needs. So there's going to be a pretty massive gap between the money the federal government provides and the money that states actually need. And that's assuming up to 40% actually means somewhere around 40%, which in practice it hasn't. It's been more like about 36%. Those funds are handed out to the states, which then, in accordance with various state methods that vary pretty widely, hand out that money to individual districts and schools, who then have to kick in from their own coffers to make up the difference. Because, in the end, it's the individual schools that are held legally responsible. The IDEA Act requires of schools, not states, that they provide what is called free and appropriate public education. There's a legal definition of that that I won't get into here, that meets the needs of every individual student. That's a big part of IDEA, which we'll get into a bit later. The fact that schools are held accountable at the individual student level, 
and those individuals' needs are assessed and defined by a group of evaluators that include teachers, parents, and trained special educators. This plan, known as an IEP, or Individualized Education Plan, is designed to provide LRE, because boy, do we love our acronyms in public education, or least restrictive environment for that student's learning. LRE was the insurance that kids with special needs wouldn't get shunted off to a back room somewhere as they had been in the past, because it basically means that the school has to provide that child with the closest possible equivalent to the environment that all the other kids have. And since an amendment to IDEA in 2005, this has been specified to mean in the same classroom, learning alongside the, quote, regular students as much as possible. Complying with all this, as I said earlier, costs a lot of money. Now, here's where the law gets really weird. The way that the law is written, states are not required to contribute their own funding to special education programs. It really does fall to the school districts themselves. And if it can be demonstrated that the school is unable or unwilling to fulfill the mandates of an IEP, then the district is legally obligated to pay even more money in the form of covering all costs for a disabled student's placement in another district, or even in a private school. The IDEA Act was both financial and civil rights legislation, so if schools fail to live up to its tenets, then they are subject not only to financial penalties, but can also be referred to the Department of Justice. And this has happened for what is ominously referred to as, quote, more serious enforcement action, unquote. Although as far as I was able to find in researching this episode, this action seems to take the form of damages paid out to families, as opposed to, say, throwing the teachers and principals behind bars. Anyway, as it turns out, as of right now, all states do help the schools within their borders to fund special education costs. The IDEA Act requires that if states want to get access to those federal special education dollars, which, remember, they can refuse and leave the towns to hang in terms of complying with federal law, but fortunately no governor wants to pass up free money, then they can't use those funds to replace what they would be paying on their own, only to supplement it. If the states lower their spending at any time, the amount of money that they get from the grant lowers as well, which on the one hand is great incentive, but on the other hand, seems weirdly like yet another version of get better from your disease quickly or we'll take away your medicine, which predominates in so many areas of public education accountability. So, if your head isn't aching from too much of all that big picture talk, let's zoom it down to the level of the real human beings who are special education students. Schools are supposed to be constantly looking to see if any student attending within their walls seems to have disabilities that qualify under IDEA. And the bar is actually pretty high, it's limited to only 13 conditions which, to be fair, subdivide into a lot of other conditions, but I'm going to group them here in three general categories. Learning disorders, conditions like dyslexia, dysgraphia, various processing disorders, serious mental health impairments, those are things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, OCD, severe anxiety or depression, and also autism and sensory processing issues. And finally, ableness issues like blindness, deafness, or mental retardation. Either someone at the school identifies a student that seems to have these conditions, and this is what's called a child find, or the parent or guardian provides that information, or even their concerns that their child might have one or more of these conditions, and that's called a referral. The next stage of the process involves qualified special educators conducting various tests and evaluations to confirm and specify the child's learning needs, including a cognitive test whose name never fails to draw barely suppressed giggles from my graduate students, the Woodcock Johnson. The final stage involves the drafting of a document called the IEP, or Individualized Education Plan, because remember, the IDEA Act defines schools' compliance with special education law as, are they meeting the needs of every individual student, whatever those needs are and whatever it takes to meet them. The IEP is composed, and periodically re-evaluated and updated if need be as the child progresses through school, 
by a committee that includes not only special educators, but regular classroom teachers, and importantly, the students' parents or guardians, and the students themselves. There's a real emphasis in special education practice on involving the child and their family as much as possible. The IEP provides the blueprint for classroom teachers to follow in educating that student. An IEP prescribes that path to follow in two forms, accommodations and modifications. Accommodations are small adjustments to classroom practices, little aids and scaffolds that, if in place, help a student with special needs do all the things that the other students can. This could take the form of getting extra time to take tests or using graphic organizers when writing essays, or having a hearing aid if you're hard of hearing. The key part is the lessons and assignments in your class don't change. You as the student just get extra support in completing them. Accommodations aren't just for students with IEPs, by the way. Even if a child's special needs don't rise to the threshold level of an IEP, they still might qualify under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Remember that? We did mention it for half a second at the episode's start as a forerunner of the IDEA Act. Anyway, a student can still qualify for what's called a 504 plan and receive aids and accommodations that the school is mandated to provide. Fewer people need to be involved in the evaluation, writing, and monitoring of a 504 plan, but in practice the process works a lot like IEP drafting. There's an important exception, too, in legal responsibility. If an IEP is not being followed, the school is held legally responsible. If a 504 isn't, the family has the right to sue the child's actual classroom teacher. So that's accommodations. Modifications, on the other hand, are major changes, ways in which the lessons and assignments are actually made different for the student. Maybe they only read one book per semester in English class rather than three, or they have to do only one page of math problems instead of five. Maybe they answer simplified questions on the test, or are graded based on different standards, or do different assignments entirely that still relate to the lesson at hand, but are somehow simplified or more accessible. In some cases, students with extremely serious and severe special needs are still educated outside of the mainstream classroom, but a host of studies have firmly established that even these students perform better the more opportunities they have to learn alongside their mainstream peers, even if it's only for a few minutes a day. The effects of higher expectations and of less stigma that come with inclusion practices are tremendous. And so the place to find most special education students today is in the classrooms right alongside everybody else. If you'd like a deeper dive into how teachers handle or should handle a classroom full of many students who all have widely different learning conditions that the teacher is required to meet, check out Season 1, Episode 7. It can be a real challenge, especially in a classroom with a large number of students total, many or even most of whom are presenting with significant needs. That challenge is reflected, somewhat depressingly, in a 2017-18 review of IDEA compliance that found just 21 states deserve the designation of meeting IDEA requirements. The other 29 aren't. I don't have magic answers, either here or for my graduate students who are trying to figure out how to meet everyone's needs in their own classrooms. I mean, I've had my own high school classrooms where as many as 10 kids have had the accommodation requirement of has to sit in the front row, and my room wasn't even wide enough for a 10-seat front row. So what I wound up doing was putting everyone in a circle, eliminating the idea of a front row entirely, and just made sure there were multiple places around the room where necessary information was posted and presented. It was good for me, too, because it forced me to always be moving around the room, eliminating that idea of a central locus of instruction. Because remember, if you create a front of the room, you also create a back of the room. And we all know what kinds of things the kids in the back of the room tend to get up to. This raises another helpful piece of advice that I can offer. A lot of accommodations, graphic organizers, untimed tests, visual aids, opportunities to do retakes, opportunities to work in groups, these are just good practice for all students, or nearly all. 
Some students might legally require these components, but there's nothing that stops you from just making them the norm for everyone. It's less variation to keep track of and more chances for everyone to learn better. That's equality in the service of equity. And that's the kind of classroom I wish I knew well enough to describe to Jamila way back when, with her concerns about what she perceived as unequal and therefore unfair treatment. I've learned that the best way to handle more contemporary Jamilas, however, is to be upfront from the beginning of the year with all my students. I announce from the outset that everyone in this class is different, has their own learning needs and preferences, some of which might even change over the course of the year. As a result, not everyone will be doing the exact same thing, the exact same way, at the exact same time every day of the year, because that wouldn't be equitable. Instead, I tell them, I will strive to facilitate a learning environment where every one of you has whatever you need in order to learn what's required of you. Then, of course, all that remains is to spend the rest of the year and the rest of my career trying to live up to that. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great! Here's your education fun fact for the episode. Talk about high school. The world's literally highest school is situated in Phumgatangtang, Tibet. Set up in 1986, the school provides free compulsory education at 5,373 meters above sea level. It's actually 200 meters higher than base camp on Mount Everest. Talk about higher education. Sorry, couldn't resist. Bye.